Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. In college, I had a professor who asked us why we write. More specifically, the question was about what effect we hoped our writing would have on readers. This presupposes that one will have readers, which, let me tell you, 20 years after graduating from college with aspirations of being a professional writer is hardly a given. Do you want to make readers laugh? She wondered, do you want to make them cry? Do you want them to shiver with delight or recognition as you describe the experience of falling in love, eating a peach, sitting with a dying beloved? Do you want to impress readers, she asked, which, of course, we all did. And she did, too. And yet she acknowledged the poverty, the vanity, the hopelessness of this aim. I went to college in the town where Robert Frost lived part of his life and where he is buried, his grave declaring, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. In an essay that he wrote about the aims of writing, Frost insisted, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. No tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. In other words, whatever effect you want something you are writing, and you may insert here cooking or painting or photographing or whatever you might be doing with the desire to share it artfully, it must first have that effect on you. And I say all of this to ask this question. Why do you want to lead a Jesus-centered life? Now, there are all sorts of reasons, many of them sensible and good, that people follow Jesus or show up to church on a regular basis. 
Maybe it's the place your parents went or your partner asked you to come or you passed by during the week and there was something intriguing about the building or the grounds or maybe it's one of those churches with a sign that gives you a preview of the upcoming sermon. Maybe you think being part of a particular church will help you feel connected to your community or win the approval of a crush, a colleague, a supervisor. You might be working out some of your questions about God and you're curious how others are or are not grappling with the same questions. Maybe you're like, maybe I am like the Pharisee, this pious person standing away from the rest of the congregation and thanking God for what a magnificently faithful person I am. And thank you, Lord, that I am not like all those people over there who watch reality TV and eat fast food and don't vote like I do and are just otherwise beyond the pale. Maybe you want to impress others and even try to impress God. Good luck with that. I can hear Jesus quoting one of my favorite theologians, Shania Twain, <laughs> responding to all my pieties and virtue signals. That don't impress me much. I had lunch a few months ago with a friend who has recently begun to worship in the Orthodox Church. And he described for me a theological paradigm shift as he moved away from the framework that is most often associated with Calvinist beliefs and traditions that emphasize the legalistic nature of scriptures and corporate worship. In this worldview, the church is a court and God is our judge who reviews our actions and issues sentences as a means of justice. I should confess that though I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, I have only skimmed Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, out of which much Reformed theology emerges, and so I am being very reductive in my portrayal of these beliefs. And really, I'm paraphrasing my friend who grew up in this tradition as well. And what he said he has discovered and enjoyed in his experience so far in the Orthodox tradition is the framework of church not as a court for criminals, but as a hospital for people presenting all manner of spiritual maladies. So I want to invite us to think about this for a minute. And maybe you have a different metaphor or analogy for church that works well for you, but I think these are useful and prevalent ones. Do you come to church thinking you've been summoned to court? You're a criminal pleading your case? Were you good this week? Are you on God's naughty or nice list? Or do you come to church thinking you are a patient and you need healing? Now, the tax collector that Jesus talks about who attends the same church as the pious Pharisee might come with both views. When he pleads for mercy, we can't be sure if he's hoping for leniency from a judge or the therapeutic care of a physician. I'm reminded of one of my favorite memes from that old El Paso commercial where a young girl asks, why don't we have both? Amen, little girl. Amen. 
We need both liberation and love, justice and mercy, because health isn't just the absence of disease, it is the presence of flourishing, which comes about when we feel encouraged, known, cherished. And such flourishing gives us the capacity to respond to life with life and to recognize that I am just as flawed as you, and we can love each other in our brokenness, and we can come before God and say, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. The tax collector is able to be honest about who he is in a way that the Pharisee cannot be, because the Pharisee is so fixated on impressing others with his piety And if he were to admit to others, to God, my God, to himself, that he is a sinner, his entire life would collapse around him. Jesus Christ wants us to be honest with ourselves. Paul says we all sin and fall short of the mark. I think we are a little afraid in the Episcopal Church to talk about sin. Now, we say a corporate confession of sin is part of our liturgies, but I mean to actually talk about sin. See, the Pharisee thinks because he isn't a sex worker, because he doesn't collect taxes or have an Amazon Prime membership or do any of the other things that he associates with sin, that he is somehow leading a blameless life. Meanwhile, the tax collector, who is a vegan, and supported Bernie Sanders, but not in the gross, aggressive Bernie bro way. (laughs) He's part of a co-op, and he's a good dad. And yet he knows, because he participates in society, that he is inextricably connected with toxicity. Ross Gay describes this situation this way. We are living such that the most mundane and daily actions, turning on the water, putting gas in the car, getting beans for the soup, flipping on the ceiling fan or the lights, teaching our classes or doing our homework, writing these sentences to you on this computer, require profound, alienated, daily violence and brutality. If that's not a definition of sin, I'm not sure what is. This profound, alienated daily violence and brutality entangles and affects each and every one of us, whether we like it or not, whether we resist or support it. We witness it in Jackson, Mississippi, and all the places in the world where people lack access to safe drinking water. We witness it in the militarized aggressions that terrorize people in Yemen and Palestine, Ukraine and Iran. We witness it in the disregard and disenfranchisement of women, our transgender siblings and people of color in this country and all over the world. We witness it in the constant despolations and exploitations of land and water and non-human creatures. And what can we do? What can we do but cry mercy? What can we do but follow the one who surrendered his life to this profound, 
and alienated violence and brutality to reveal to us the absurdity, the futility of such systems, and to show us there is healing, there is redemption, there is a God who gazes upon all our trials and troubles and temptations and wants nothing more than to be with us, to hold us, to forgive us, to free us. So we might keep trying to impress this God, or we can be honest with God, with each other, with ourselves. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of the old spiritual that goes, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. So there are many reasons to be part of church and to lead a Jesus-centered life, but I'm not sure that there are any better than knowing we worship a God who longs for our presence, our entire complex, contrary, damaged, and beautiful selves. And this God is so attuned to each sin and sadness and sickness that keeps us up at night and makes our minds race and hearts ache by day and just wants to say to each of us, tax collector and Pharisee and everyone in between, come, I have something to show you. Find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.